Well, good morning, everybody. Later this morning, we are starting uh, what's shaping up to be an 11-week uh, sermon series on the nature of Scripture, the nature of our Bible. Um, I've been praying already, and I, I'll continue to pray uh, for a few things, that God would do a few things. First of all, that he would uh, expand and deepen our understanding of what the Bible is, uh, that he would increase our delight in the scriptures, uh, and also that just generally speaking, he would create in us a fresh awe and reverence for him and for his word. So these things I'm praying. Um, each week, what we plan to do is to have this little segment early in the, in the service where we will look at a statement on the Bible or an affirmation of what the Bible is. And these will be taken from our forebears in the faith, from church history. And the idea here, or the question we're asking is, what have our forebears said about the Bible? What did they believe about what the scriptures actually are. I think this can be helpful for us uh, if we look at some of these statements. First of all, to weed out any false ideas that we may have concerning the Bible and what it is, and also to sort of crystallize um, a God-glorifying understanding of the Bible. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to start with a statement that goes back only about 65 or 70 years. This is actually a statement from our own denominations, um, affirmation of faith is what it's called. It was created in 1953 and it really hasn't changed since then. So we're going to read this statement now. Again, this is uh, the statement on the Bible from the affirmation of faith of the fellowship of evangelical Baptist churches in Canada. And it reads as follows. We believe the Bible to be the complete word of God that the 66 books as originally written, comprising the Old and New Testaments, were verbally inspired by the Spirit of God and were entirely free from error, that the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice and the true basis of Christian union. Now, the part that I've highlighted in blue pertains especially to what we're going to talk about in the sermon later this morning. So just in summary terms, what we're going to talk about today is the fact that God verbally inspired the original manuscripts of all 66 books of our Bible. More on that later, but for now, enjoy your time in worship. Father, thank you for protecting us. Thank you for... Uh, keeping us, Lord, as, as your church. And we pray that today, Lord, this preaching time would be a time of worship, that you would be glorified here, and that you would help us in our understanding of your word and what a precious treasure it is that you have given to us. We pray these things in the mighty and in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, 42 years ago, when I was eight years of age, uh, graduating from grade three, I was given this very children's living Bible from the Sunday school of the United Church that our family attended at the time. When I received this Bible at the tender age of eight, I made up my mind 
that I was going to read through the entire book. And so I began at that point my initial exposure to what Karl Barth once called the strange new world of the Bible. Now, of course, at age, at age eight, I hadn't read very much, but compared to everything that I had read up to that point, uh, the Bible seemed completely and utterly different. I remember, even as a child, reading the Bible, and there was just something about it, something different about it. Well, about 13 years after that, as I was attending uh, Humber College in Toronto, I was powerfully converted to Jesus Christ under the sound of the Bible's message while I was attending a church service that took place uh, in a school gymnasium. My roommate at the time, who became one of my best friends, gifted me, days after my conversion, he gifted me with this Bible, which is an NIV study Bible. At that point, right after my conversion, an ember began to burn inside. There was the beginning of a desire at that point to know the Bible and hear the Bible preached and come under the sound of the Bible and be changed by it. And so both of these Bibles that I've shown you here today, they're very uh, special to me. But there's a third Bible that I brought here this morning. This one is falling apart. As you can see, it's very worn. In about 1997, my mother gave this Bible to me. It is my great-grandfather's Bible, and it was printed in the 19th century. My great-grandfather lived in the province of Manitoba, and apparently the story is that he used this very Bible to lead his family in devotionals before the workday on the farm uh, got started. So mom wanted me to have this Bible because already in 1997, she could see in me a love for the Bible and a commitment to study the Bible. And on the cover of this Bible, you probably can't see it in the camera, but faded away there is the name of my grandfather, Daniel Haw. It's still legible, uh, even though over the past 110 or 120 years, it's faded out quite a bit. I treasure this Bible very much also. It was around the time when my mom gave me that third Bible that God really began to start fanning that ember inside me, now I began to develop an irresistible hunger to hear the Word of God, to sit under the preaching of the Word of God, to learn the Word of God, and to heed the Word of God. I remember the initial sensation that I experienced when sitting under expository verse-by-verse preaching. It was, it was unlike anything that I had ever thought possible. It was so powerful, I remember, and so ordered, and so arresting, and so life-giving. Well, as things turned out, I ended up doing a wholesale switch out of a promising music career so that I could devote myself to learn the art and the science of preaching the Bible. In 2002, we sold our house 
And I quit my full-time job at the time so that I can enroll, I could enroll in seminary full-time in order to learn primarily how to exegete and how to exposit the Bible. And then four years ago, as I was on the tail end of my doctoral program in what else? Biblical theology. Our family moved across the nation, across Canada, to come here to Snowden. I personally believed that God wanted me here in this most secularized part of Canada so that I could play just a very small role in letting the lion out of the cage, so to speak, to bring a consciously word-centered focus to the church in this particular city. Indeed, for the past 18 years of my life, the central labor has been to preach and to teach God's Word, the Bible, and I've tried to maintain that focus even when certain detractors have wanted less Bible and more of something else. Now, friends, I say all of this not to promote myself, not to make myself look special. The only reason that I have begun this way is to point out that I am just one of millions upon millions of people who have been gripped, who have been changed, who have been convicted, who have been transformed, left breathless, delighted in God's revelation, the Bible. Maybe you're one of those people too. Maybe the Bible has utterly turned you from the sort of person that you were now to the sort of person that you are. All praise to God for his word, for the power that God still wields by his Spirit's use of his word. Well, this morning we are beginning a sermon series, as has been mentioned, on the nature of the Bible. And I've been praying that God will be powerful in these weeks, that he will increase our thirst for the Scriptures. I'm praying that he is going to clarify in our thinking and in our hearts just how precious the Bible is. I'm praying that our love for the Scriptures, our reverence for the God of the Scriptures, is going to expand and to grow deeper. And I'm praying that increasingly, increasingly, we will be people who wait on tenterhooks to hear God's Word, that we will become people who tremble at the Word of God, if that's not already the case with us, and that God will instill in us a stubborn desire to share his word with the world around us. Well, I want to start the meat of this sermon by taking us back to that denomina denominational statement that we looked at earlier in the service. Just as a reminder here, our church falls under the broader umbrella of the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches in Canada, or FEBCC for short. And in their affirmation of faith, which is ours also, we have the statement that 
the 66 books of the Bible as originally written, comprising the Old and New Testaments, were verbally inspired by the Spirit of God. Now, first of all, let's talk about that word inspired in the statement. What does it mean to say that the whole Bible is inspired? Well, as a guy who plays drums, uh, there have been times over the years when I've listened to a great drummer play on a record, and I have felt inspired. I've felt a great uh, sort of uh, feeling or a sense of excitement, of motivation in listening to that great drummer, which then has prompted me to sit down again at the drum set and try to work out what I heard the person play. Well, is that how we should understand the term inspired when we are talking about the writing of the scriptures? Was it just that the original writers of the scriptures felt a certain sense of excitement or, or a sudden sort of motivation and then they sat down and began to write. No, that's not what we're talking about here. What's going to help us, I think, is if we go now to one of the primary biblical passages on this idea of inspiration. And the passage that I have in mind goes a long way, I think, in clarifying for us what the inspiration of Scripture is all about. So the passage is 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And what I want to do here is to read, first of all, the King James Version of these verses. Usually we read at Snowden the ESV. Today we're reading the King James Version. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to the younger Timothy here toward the end of Paul's life. And Paul says here in the King James Version, he says... All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect throughly, and the word in the King James is throughly, not thoroughly, throughly furnished unto all good works. Now, just notice here that the King James has that word inspiration in verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So that the choice that the King James translators made in this verse, but it's also the choice that was made in Bibles like the Revised Standard Version and the New American Standard Bible, the choice was to borrow from the Latin Bible, from what is called the Vulgate, which has the Latin word inspirata here in 2 Timothy 3.16. So the English word inspiration or inspired in 2 Timothy 3.16 comes from the Latin inspirata, and we need to know it is less than ideal as a translation from the original Greek, it's really not the best. Far better is the translation we have in the English Standard Version and in the NIV, 
which is the translation God breathed. God breathed. So let's read the initial part of verse 16 now from the English Standard Version. It reads as follows. All scripture is breathed out by God. That captures far better the original Greek of the verse, breathed out by God. The Greek word in question here in this verse has to do, listen, it has to do with God exhaling. In Genesis 2 verse 7, God breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of the first human being. Here in 2 Timothy 3.16, we are told that all Scripture, all 66 books of our Bible, are the product of divine breath. We're told here that the origin of our Bible, and this is important, the origin of our Bible is God himself. God's exhalation. As Derek Thomas puts it rather succinctly in his little book on the Bible, he says, God exhales and the product is Scripture. God exhales and the product is Scripture. But now wait a minute. Does this mean then that the Bible dropped out of the sky directly from God to us? Well, no. Of course we know that what God did is he chose and he employed certain diverse human beings living in different places, living in different periods. He chose and he employed these people to write down the words that we find in the 66 books of our Bible. To quote the words of 2 Peter 1.21, when these human authors of Scripture wrote, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But just get hold of the basic situation that we have here. What we have is a situation that is described very well by John Frame, who writes, Scripture is both a divine book and a human book. God is the author, and there are also human authors. So that, friends, when we are talking about the Bible, we are talking about dual authorship. Dual authorship. God and human beings. J.I. Packer suggests that we might take Jeremiah 1.9 as a sort of summary statement of what we're talking about when we talk about the divine human authorship of the Bible. So in Jeremiah 1.9, God says to the prophet Jeremiah, listen to this, Behold, God says, I have put my words in your mouth. 
my words in your mouth. God puts his words into the mouth of, the, of his human creature there, Jeremiah. Or as Packer has it, God causes his message to enter into a man's mind by psychological processes that are in part opaque to us so that the man may then faithfully relay the message to others. Now just take a moment, a silent moment or two, to read that again to yourself. When we are talking about the words that appear in our Bible, we are talking about words that are at once divine and human. Simultaneously divine and human. When we talk about the Bible, we need to emphasize both sides of the equation, the divine and the human, but we must always try to keep them in a careful balance. As Matthew Barrett writes, and I think this is great, quote, we do not want to so emphasize the human contribution that we make scripture a human product. At the same time, he says, we do not want to so emphasize the divine that human instrumentality is irrelevant. Listen, what happened in the creation of the Bible is that God breathed out his words through human authors, but even as God breathed out his words through the human authors, God did not erase or negate the personality and the experiences and the styles of the human authors. In fact, God preserved those things and God used those things. I want to say that all again. What happened in the creation of the Bible is that God breathed out his words through human authors but even as God breathed out his words through the human authors, God did not erase, he did not negate the personality and the experiences and the styles of the human authors. In fact, God preserved those things and God used those things. Now, the kind of inspiration that we are talking about here, which I believe is the correct understanding, is what some theologians have called organic inspiration. John Frame, who is a theologian that I very much respect, argues for the organic inspiration view, and he helps us understand what it is. He says this, Organic inspiration means that God used, listen to this, that God used all the distinct personal qualities of each biblical writer. God used the differences of heredity, environment, upbringing, education, gifts, talents, styles, interests, 
and idiosyncrasies to reveal his word. So then, the organic inspiration of the scriptures is very different, and we need to understand this, it's very different than the idea of God simply dictating his words to human beings who then wrote like uh, hypnotized stenographers, entranced stenographers, writing precisely what God dictated to them. No. For the person who holds to organic inspiration, when we say that the Bible is inspired, we don't mean that God simply dictated the words to human beings and those human beings then wrote precisely what God dictated like uh, robots with none of their personality in the mix. What we mean rather is that God mysteriously, and admittedly there is mystery here, God mysteriously utilized the character and the intellect and the background and the personality and the experiences and the styles of each of the human writers of Scripture in order to write into his book exactly the words that he wanted to be written and all of it free from error. Now, just so that we can try to cement all this a little bit more into our thinking, I want us to slowly hear uh, Matthew Barrett's helpful definition of inspiration. Here's what Barrett writes. Listen to this. I'll go through this slow. The inspiration of Scripture refers to the act whereby the Holy Spirit acted upon the authors of Scripture causing them to write exactly what God intended while simultaneously preserving each author's writing style and personality. The supernatural work of the Holy Spirit upon the human authors means, here's what it means, that the author's words are God's words and therefore, therefore are reliable, trustworthy, and authoritative. I think that's a helpful, accurate definition of what it is we're talking about when we're talking about the inspiration of the Scriptures. Now, after all that, let's return for a moment to that fellowship statement on the Bible that we have been highlighting and the section we're interested in this morning is the section that reads, the 66 books, as originally written, comprising the Old and New Testaments, were verbally inspired by the Spirit of God. Now, we've talked a little bit about most of this sentence. We've talked about how all 66 books of the Bible, the Old and New Testaments in total, are breathed out by God. So from Genesis through Revelation, all of it is the product of God's exhalation. All of it has its origin in God. God is the source of the 66 books. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, or maybe you'll read in a statement of faith, something like, 
We believe in the plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, plenary inspiration of the Bible. That word plenary comes from the Latin word plenus, and it means full. So to argue for the plenary inspiration of Scripture means that you're arguing that the full Bible, the all-extensive Bible, all 66 books have been breathed out by God. We've also talked this morning about the verbal inspiration aspect of our fellowship's uh, statement on the Bible. When we talk about verbal inspiration, what we mean is that the very words of Scripture, the very words of Scripture have been breathed out by God, and those words have been written in our Bibles through the instrumentality of human authors. So it's not just that the ideas or the concepts or the doctrines of the Bible have been God-breathed. It's not just that. It's that the very words have been. The verbal inspiration of Scripture. But now the remaining section of this sentence from the fellowship statement that we have not yet talked about is that part that suggests that the plenary, full, verbal, every word, inspiration, God-breathedness of the Bible, that this applies formally to the original writings, to the original manuscripts of the Bible. Well, it's a well-known fact today that we have a grand total of zero of the original manuscripts of the Bible. The original manuscripts have all been lost. All we have at our disposal are copies of what was originally written. But yet the statement says, and I think correctly it says, that strictly speaking, strictly speaking, when we are talking about the inspiration of the Scriptures, we are talking only about the God breathedness of the original manuscripts. The copies that we have at our disposal are not, strictly speaking at least, they are not God-breathed. But then, of course, the question is, well, where does this leave us today? Again, our situation is that we have none of the original manuscripts. So our English Bibles, our French Bibles, our Spanish Bibles, and our Farsi Bibles, they've all been translated from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. But those translations into our languages are based on copies of what was originally written, not the original manuscript. So does this mean then that we can't trust our Bibles fully? No, it does not mean that whatsoever. A couple of things to point out here. First of all, this is an important point, when we see Jesus and the apostles 
appealing to the Scriptures in the New Testament, as they so often do, they are appealing in those instances to copies of the Scriptures, copies that they had and that they were working with. They are not appealing to the original manuscripts. In fact, when the apostles quote the Old Testament in their writings, they are not quoting from the original Hebrew manuscripts, they are quoting from a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So then it seems that copies of the original were good enough for Jesus and the apostles. Jesus and the apostles were quite willing to say that the copies that they quoted from were the authoritative word of God. I think that helps us very much when we consider our own copied, translated Bibles. That's the first point. The second thing is, and I want you to listen here, never discount God's care and God's ability to preserve what he originally breathed out even through the processes of copying and translation and transmission. Would God not want to providentially conserve and preserve his words in Scripture even through the potentially fallible process of human copying and human transition? Would he not want to preserve his word. You bet he would. Of course he would. And he has. And here's the proof of that. The proof that God has providentially preserved his word through the copies and translations that we have is that lives across this globe continue to be transformed radically under the sound of of those copies and those translations. When I read the Word of God, and when I hear the Word of God preached or taught in my English translation that has come to me via copies of what was originally written, the situation when I hear the Word, when I read the Word, it's as exciting as J. Ligon Duncan has described it when he says this. I love this quote. He says, You can feel the breath of God on your ear and in your heart as that word is read in your hearing. It is an exceedingly precious thing. Amen? An exceedingly precious thing. And that is why, he says, the people of God through the ages have valued the Word of God. It is God himself speaking to his people. Well, my friends in Christ, when we talk about the inspiration, the God-breathed nature of the Bible, it's also tremendously comforting to us and reassuring to us to see that Jesus himself and his apostles all believed fully that the scriptures were breathed out by God. Jesus and the apostles worked under that resolute conviction. 
We want to just take time here to look briefly at a few passages where we can see this belief of theirs in action, and then we'll end off today with some application of everything that we've been saying. So I want to remind you here, as we get into this, that it's always best for us, it's always best if we align ourselves with the view of Jesus and and his apostles. It's always best. And their view of the Bible is that it is breathed out by God, that it has its origin in God himself. Well, where do we see this? Well, first of all, come with me to Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. So the context here, Jesus is talking to some Pharisees. He's talking on the subject of marriage and divorce. And listen very carefully to his words here. Jesus says, follow this with me. Have you not read that he who created them, and immediately we know who it is that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about none other than God. God is the one who created Adam and Eve. God is the he here. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said. Who is the one who said in the flow of the verse, God is? In the flow of the verse, Jesus is still talking about God. God is the one who said. And what did God say according to Jesus? God said, verse 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, etc. Jesus here in verse 5 brings in words from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and notice very carefully that he attributes the words of Genesis 2.24, he attributes them directly and explicitly to God. But here's the really interesting thing. In the original setting, Genesis 2.24 is Moses narrating the story. Moses writes in that verse, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Moses is writing that. And yet here, Jesus clearly attributes those words not to Moses, but to God. Why? Because Jesus understood that what Moses wrote, God wrote. Jesus understood that ultimately God had breathed out Genesis 2.24 through the instrumentality of Moses. What Moses wrote, God wrote. Jesus had confidence. He had complete assurance in the divine inspiration of Scripture. And we see the same phenomenon again from Jesus over in Mark 7, verses 10 through 13, where Jesus begins in that passage in verse 10, he begins by quoting Moses, and he attributes the quote to Moses. But then just three verses later, he refers to the same quote as the word of God. Again, for Jesus, what Moses wrote 
what the prophets of Israel wrote in the Old Testament was the very word of God. Three more examples, very quickly, this time from the apostles Peter, Paul, and also the writer to the Hebrews. There are so many more we could go to, but we won't for the sake of time. But let's have a look briefly at what Peter says in Acts 1.16. He says this, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, and then notice this, which, who spoke? The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. How did he speak it? By the mouth of David concerning Judas. And then if we read that passage down in verse 20, Peter quotes two verses written by David in the Psalms. One from Psalm 69 and the other from Psalm 109. But just notice very well here, friends, that for Peter, those verses that David wrote were spoken by the Holy Spirit through David. For Peter, just as it is with Jesus, the Old Testament scriptures are authored by God and they are authored by human authors. Again, as Peter would later flesh out in 2 Peter 1, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then the last two examples I'll give you here come from the Apostle Paul, first of all, and then from the writer to the Hebrews. So concerning Paul, notice over in Acts 28, verses 25 and 26, here Paul is preaching in Rome, and he says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet. Notice that. And then Paul quotes Isaiah 6 verse 9 and Isaiah 6 verse 10. But notice again, for the Apostle Paul, what Isaiah said, the Holy Spirit said. The Old Testament scriptures were breathed out by God through human instruments. And then the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 3.7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then what does he do? He quotes from Psalm 95, verse 7. Now, a human being wrote Psalm 95, verse 7. But for the writer of Hebrews, the words of the psalmist, the human psalmist, can be attributed to the Holy Spirit. What the psalmist wrote, the Holy Spirit wrote. The scriptures, once again, are understood by the writer of Hebrews, by the apostle Paul, Peter, John, by Jesus, all the apostles. They are understood to be divinely inspired, breathed out by God, but written by human instruments. Again, the basic point here is that Jesus and the writers of the New Testament held to the view that scripture was breathed out by God, even as it was written through God's chosen human instruments. And if that's the case, friends, if they believed that, which they did, then it is highly advisable for us to take the same position, which is the safest position and the true position. Well, this morning we've been defining and discussing 
what it is to say that the Bible is inspired. And I think a a good summary of our whole discussion this morning is found in the writing of Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary. Moeller says this, quote, God wrote a book. He did so through human authors he selected and prepared. By the Holy Spirit, the human authors of Scripture were guided into truth and protected from all error. Making full use of their human faculties and personalities, the Holy Spirit breathed the very words of Scripture through them so that the canonical writings, in other words, the 66 books of our Bible, are the product of human authors and at the same time are the very Word of God. Now, friends, where the rubber hits the road with all of this, where this all gets, I think, intensely practical, is when we redirect our gaze, just for a moment, from this book to the present condition of our world. The virus, no cure in sight as of yet. Every human being on planet Earth at the mercy of this microscopic thing. Meanwhile, violence and great turbulence and division and mistrust is boiling away on the streets. There's identity confusion rife in our world. There are hysterical mobs of people compelling other people to say and do certain things and not to say and do other things that had been acceptable the day before yesterday. Over in Yemen and in Syria, horrific ongoing conflict. In Mexico, brutal organized crime. And on and on and on and on it goes. In many ways, I think you would agree with me, we are an ongoing train wreck in this world. Are we not? Here is perhaps the most important question that we can ask in such a climate. Do we have divine instruction at our disposal or do we not? I mean for real. Do we have divine, from God, divine revelation at hand that can actually make us wise Or do we not? Which is it? If you believe that the Bible is just great 
human literature. If you believe that the Bible is something less than the God-breathed revelation to humanity that it is, then, my friend, you will only toy with it. And perhaps you might pay it some sort of meek lip service. But should you take seriously the Bible's self-attestation to what it is, namely, the God-breathed revelation of God written through human instruments in 66 books, if you take it as the inspired word of God, then everything changes. Is it possible that when you pick up your Bible and begin to read, that you are encountering God himself? Could it be that these words in this book are universally applicable because they come from the one God who made the universe? Could it be that in the Bible we have truth? We have the most crucial revelation that has ever been given to the masses of humanity, the revelation of the only Savior of this sin-sick, dying world, Jesus Christ, who died an atoning death to rescue us to reverse the curse that has befuddled our world since Genesis chapter 3. Could it be? Could it be, my friends, that the Bible has been exhaled into our world by God himself? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word is a lamp in a very dark place. Your word is the most precious object that you have given to humankind. Father, I pray that there would be a revival of Bible, not only here at this church and in Montreal, but across Canada, across North America, across the world. This is our simple childlike prayer in faith. Lord, turn lights on in unregenerate people to show them that you have given them the revelation that they and everyone else needs. Thank you for Jesus Christ who is revealed in the pages of Scripture. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is revealed in the pages of Scripture. Thank you, Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your ongoing passionate interest in sin-sick humanity. I pray, Lord, as we go through these weeks, that you would light fires and create thirsts afresh for your word. In Jesus' name.